0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: The 20th century artist and writer Bruno Schultz always remained a citizen of the Republic of Dreams, although he was born an Austrian, lived as a Pole, and was murdered as a Jew. His short life began as a citizen of the Habsburg monarchy, and without changing his residence, he became the subject of the West Ukrainian People's Republic, the Second Polish Republic, the USSR, and finally, tragically, the Third Reich. Welcome to the Van Leer series on ideas. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host, and I'm delighted to welcome Benjamin Baland, award-winning author of Kafka's Last Trial, to talk about his new book, Bruno Schultz, An Artist, a Murder, and the Hijacking of History. Benjamin Balint, welcome to the podcast.
2: very pleased to be here with you, Renee.
1: Ben, the book was really a wonderful read and at times a very, very difficult read. Uh, to our sorrow, Bruno Schultz was not the only multi-talented, extraordinary person to be murdered in the Holocaust. What was it about his story in particular that captured your interest?
2: Well, I first have a personal interest in the sense that my grandmother hailed from the same part of what was then Polish Galicia. I've always been interested in that far east, easternmost borderland of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and of the richness of Jewish life there. Bruno Schulz was born in proximity to the birthplaces of other writers in the last generation of that monarchy like Josef Roth, like Shai Agnon, all in this very tight, uh, tight area. The second, um, uh, line that, that attracted me to the story is that I met several people whose parents were survivors from Bruno Schulz's hometown called Drohobic and told me their stories, including stories of being summoned back to Germany to testify against the SS officer who had enslaved Bruno Schulz. And third, I got to him because of my work on Kafka. Bruno Schulz was, in some ways, has deep affinities to the work of Franz Kafka, another member of the, another citizen of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And in fact, Schulz was the first translator of Kafka into Polish, Um, and to this day, that translation is regarded as the gold standard in the Polish language. So for all those reasons, and and I'll add just one more if I may, which is that I've always been interested in how Jewish writing works in the diaspora. So my first book was about uh, essentially a biography of commentary magazine and the ways that it shaped American Jewish writing, Jewish writing in English. The second book on Kafka was about how it is to write as a Jew in German. And this most recent book on Bruno Schulz is essentially a reflection on what it is to write uh, as a Jew in Polish.
1: Schultz said that his ideal was to mature into childhood. Uh, How did his childhood in Poland influence his creativity?
2: He was always deeply rooted in his hometown, the It nourished his imagination. He had plenty of opportunities to... uh, wade into the wider world of Warsaw, for example, but he always chose to stay in, in Drohobycz, uh, even when, as we'll speak about later, it was, it was too late, uh, his, the narrators of his stories, masterful, imaginative fictions are in most cases, a boy, uh, named Joseph. He uh, Schulz is one of the people who mastered the art of telling stories through the childlike but never naive wonderment um, of a boy narrator. And that is is just a, a wonderful and, and very deep part of his imaginative legacy.
1: Some of his themes, though, are definitely not, at least apparently, Uh, childlike, Uh, what's your understanding or your interpretation of the recurring theme in his work of female power and male subservience?
2: So as you mentioned at the outset, Bruno Schulz gained fame and renown first as a graphic artist in the 1920s before he published his books in the 1930s. And as a graphic artist, as you say, he emphasized in his engravings and in his surviving painting uh, very masochistic themes of, um, beautiful long-legged women who remain aloof and indifferent to their male worshipers. And Schultz had somewhat of a reputation, uh, for this. I spoke with one, uh, son of a survivor from Drohobich who said, yes, in my family, I remember we didn't even have to mention the name Bruno Schultz. We simply said the pornographer. And everyone knew to whom, uh, we were referring. So yes, he had this, um, very provocative style. Um, and, uh, it's very interesting to think about for me, the tensions and paradoxes between that style of, as a graphic artist versus his verbal virtuosity, which, uh, as you've, as you mentioned, involves returning to childhood and to the myths of childhood. There's a real paradox there, I think.
1: Yes. And um, as an adult, he was pretty open about his masochism. He seemed to look at it as an elevated uh, kind of philosophical worldview, different from the masochism we would associate with pornography. Was his social environment also accepting of it? His friends, his uh, artistic world?
2: In his immediate vicinity, yes. Uh, In the wider culture, perhaps less so. Uh, So there were several political figures in Poland who took exception to his uh, public exhibitions in the 1920s on, on these grounds. But as you suggest, there's nothing pornographic about his graphic art. On the contrary, there's something very straightforward about it. And there's something to me that that speaks of his own self-consciousness as a person on the margins, as a person who looks, uh, so to speak, um, from the outside looking out. (laughs) And this is one of the affinities with with Franz Kafka, by the way. So there's something deeply um, invested in, uh, let's say, powerlessness that also ties to political powerlessness, that also ties to uh, his artistic vision of a, a child who, who and, and children who often feel powerless in the greater world. And uh, finally, the sense that only by seeing things through the, let's say, uh, incomprehension of a child can the incomprehensible events of the 20th century, uh, be thrown into relief. That is to say, uh, rather than to try to come to any closure, um, Schultz in both parts of his artistic, uh, creativity, wanted to remain almost radically open, uh, and to, to leave paradoxes as they were.
1: Do you think that profound sense of powerlessness and confusion was what he was referring to when, uh, in describing his uh, short stories in the book Cinnamon Shops, um, he said it was autobiographical and uh, pointed out that the overriding motif is profound loneliness, isolation from the stuff of daily life. I wondered when I read that, whether it was the political situation, madness that he lived through his whole life or and or whether it was a more uh existential loneliness that everybody feels or uh, neurotic or artistic loneliness how what is that loneliness that he sees as the uh the overriding motif?
2: I think there was a degree of political loneliness, of political vulnerability. This was an extraordinarily and exceptionally sensitive person. Uh, There was the loneliness of being a Jew, especially one in a region of shifting borders, as you said in uh, in your introduction at the outset, a um, blurring of borders that finds expression in his writing, which often blurs the distinctions that adults usually maintain between let's say the animate and the inanimate between uh between reason and um impulses of the heart between reality and dream there's often something very dreamlike about his about his fictions Uh, and in those senses there's a deep parallel between what's going on politically the shifting political boundaries uh and the and the sense of political instability on the one hand, and how those perplexities are reflected in his narrative fictions with all of the blurring uh, that go on there and with all the uh, childlike incomprehension, really. Um, And a childlike incomprehension which somehow suits the the sometimes horrific realities um, of the war-torn region, that in in which he lived, which uh, Timothy Snyder has has called the Bloodlands of Europe,
1: yeah, a- and that openness or fluidity is uh, a- another dimension on which um, uh, Schultz has been compared to Kafka. He, he he even goes so far as to write about or imply shape shifting. What does what that fluid change and shape-shifting mean to you? Mostly political or something else?
2: I think it could be an expression of alienation. I think it could be an expression of um, how deeply unstable reality can be. How um, in a certain sense to, to both of the writers, Schultz and Kafka, there's a mythological dimension. Uh, he once describes writing as sinking a probe into the nameless and trying to bring something back from something that's even deeper than what we usually name. Um, he has in common with Kafka, you know, uh, characters who, who undergo metamorphosis. Into a cockroach, into crabs, for example, in other words, scuttling creatures, uh, and there's something deeply prescient, I would say, about about all of this
1: he was writing about it before it happened,
2: yeah, he was writing about this in the 19, in the 1930s before uh, any of this was a political reality, but I think he sensed the direction in which uh, Jewish life in that part of the world was was tending.
1: And and that brings us to the part that I found painful to read, really difficult, painful, even though you write it in a very factual, matter-of-fact way, not designed to arouse painful emotions. That is the part where you describe the discrimination, anti-Semitism, the barbaric cruelty that Jews in that region suffered from a series of sources before the Nazis, Ukrainian nationalists, communists, Polish nationalists, and that's the time when he was writing. So I want to ask you, how did doing that research impact you? If I had a hard time reading it, what was it like for you to study it? Uh, And also, how did Schultz and others, people around him, cope psychologically through all that?
2: I think it's a concentrated microcosm of a general condition of the Jewish diaspora. So, for example, uh, even before the Nazis arrived, as you mentioned, uh, Schultz had to live under Soviet rule, at which time he already had to uh, make his art, That is what is precious, most precious to him, subservient to political purposes. In other words, he was coerced to uh, turn his art towards propaganda, Soviet propaganda, for example. He was coerced to um, paint a huge mural of uh, Stalin. Um, And I had the sense when I was discovering all of this, that, you know, to be a Jew in the diaspora in the 20th century is to be coerced to one degree or another, to turn one's innermost passions, um, into something that serves, um, external forces, larger political forces, something that's, uh, that renders the individual helpless. Uh, because of how powerful these, these larger forces are. Uh, so that got me thinking about the whole idea of coerced art. How can, in other words, there was a, uh, there was a sense in which Schulze's art became the currency in which he bought life, in which he extended his own life. And there's something deeply tragic about that. I also was Uh, extremely moved doing archival research, uh, including in Vienna, uh, in which I discovered post-war testimonies of uh, what was going on in Drolbic, both in the ghetto and uh, in the various uh, persecutions. Uh, And I think that Schulz represents the most concentrated version of this I've I've ever seen
1: and regarding coerced art uh, you asked the question in the book about whether uh, the the murals painted at the hands of his uh, slave master we'll get to him in a moment Felix landau whether those works were uh, transient products of trauma or enduring works that transcend it Great question. what What do you think?
2: I think this also is a question that many people in the diaspora will confront in one way or another, which is to say, <clears throat> to what degree uh, if if I'm forced to accommodate to the larger culture, uh, there are many forms of accommodation, from the most coercive to um, that which seems m- more pal- palatable. Uh, in each case, it raises these these cultural conundrums, which is to say, to what degree and what I is, is what I'm doing an accommodation, a pragmatic um, uh, a pragmatic negotiation with the larger culture, something that I have to do. Am I translating myself, or is what I'm doing really of of lasting uh, of lasting value? Something that I that that. I'm moved to do from my own interior impulses rather than exterior coercive impulses. So that's what fascinated me about the story of Schultz is that in its most extreme form, you hear you have an artist, an extremist who's forced to turn his, uh, that which is most important to him, to these pragmatic ends to serve masters uh, that he doesn't want to serve.
1: He was enslaved by a sadist Nazi, Felix Landau, uh, who uh, enslaved him in every way. He had the power of life and death uh, over uh, Bruno Schultz. Uh, You write about that relationship, uh, and this is a quote, with Landau, the Nazi art of power met Schultz's power of art. Uh, Expand on that for us.
2: I meant to say that the Nazis spoke about, uh, the art of power, how to wield power and almost to the degree that they aestheticized, uh, power and force. And we all can have our own associations with, um, Nazi aesthetics. That was something that they prided themselves on and in a very ironic way in a way that Schulz himself never would have expected that power that, that 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 sheer power met a very different kind of power which was uh Schulz's faith in the power of art he was described as almost uh I mean he, he was absolutely single-mindedly devoted to his art uh, and believed in Uh, in its enduring power. So here you have a great irony, which is that you have someone who in the 1920s was exploring various masochistic motifs who who a decade later was enslaved by a real Nazi sadist. And uh, one of the most haunting chapters for me to write was about that relationship between a Austrian SS officer who thought of himself as a as a man of let's say refined artistic taste who therefore enslaved his he, his eye was caught by Schulz's art and enslaved Bruno Schulz at first to do simple things like you know paint portraits of the Gestapo officers wives and mistresses to mm-hmm. paint murals on the casino And then finally, and this brings us back to the irony of um, Schultz's maturing into childhood, finally, the last things that he was, so to speak, commissioned to do was to paint fairy tale murals for for the children's room of this SS
1: officer. And that is ironic. Yeah. Um, Schultz would have sunk into oblivion if not for the courage and the commitment of one person, uh, tell us his story.
2: Well, just like Franz Kafka had his Max Brod, who uh, was his closest friend and who rescued his works for posterity and published all the unfinished novels of Kafka that we have today, so too Bruno Schulz uh, had his biographer and uh, gatherer of all of his um, art and letters. He's he's a Polish, uh, writer and distinguished poet in his own right named Jerzy Fisowski. And Fisowski, uh, you know, with single-minded devotion gathered together everything that we now have of Bruno Schulz. In some cases Fisowski failed, uh, famously failed. So to give you one example, uh, we know that at the end of his life, uh, Bruno Schulz, who had never published a novel, was working on his masterpiece, was working on a novel, We know, the title of the novel, it was called the Messiah. And we know from several letters that when he and his family were forced to move into the Drobic ghetto, he parceled out several of his artworks and his manuscripts to Catholic friends outside the ghetto, one of which included the only existing manuscript of this, of this novel called the Messiah. And it has never been seen since. It uh, is one of the great literary mysteries of the 20th century. Um, uh, there are certain hints that it may still be in, in an unmarked box in the Red Army archives in Moscow. Uh, I made some inquiries myself in that direction. I didn't get very far. Uh, so with the exception, and, and Fisovsky is the one thing that Fisovsky was hunting for until the day of his own death. Uh, but yes, we are greatly indebted to the uh, labor, labor of love of, of Fisovsky in bringing us um, in touch biographically with the letters uh, that w- that Bruno Schulz had written, and with uh, whatever of his artworks have survived,
1: uh, people like him, and to whom we owe a debt, uh, at Max Broad. Is there something unique about them? Are they just ordinary people who fell in love with this work and were inspired to bring it out to the public? Or is there something, do you see a commonality between the two personalities?
2: In some senses, yes, because both Max Broad and Fisovsky were distinguished writers, uh, themselves and yet, uh, achieved a kind of selflessness when they came into contact with someone that, that they unmistakably uh, discerned to be a genius. And there's a certain selflessness there um, because I think both writers, Broad and Fisovsky, knew that they, in a certain sense, they would never get out from under the shadow of their um, uh, uh, masters, so to speak, of the, of the writers that they dedicated themselves to, and I think that there's a, there's a great selflessness there.
1: There's, a, there's something poetic in the fact that uh, the novel, Unfinished or, or just Unavailable, uh, has as its theme something messianic, uh, something about the Messiah, which uh, given the dreadful uh, life-killing uh, circumstances in which he lived, a messianic hope is uh, quite understandable but is that a theme in his other work, artistic or literary?
2: Yes. Yeah, so for for example, some of his drawings um, depict not just masochistic scenes. That's just one part of his uh, body of work. But also Jewish scenes, including with titles like, you know, a group of Jews waiting around a well for the, for the advent of the Messiah. Um, secondly, he uh, relates childhood to messianic times he once said that if it were possible to turn back one's development to so to speak repeat your childhood in its in its limitlessness then that would be the realization of um of messianic times which which uh many cultures have promised and and pledged to us so it was part of also the <clears throat> the um the cultivation of these profound powers of childlike imagination um And, uh, uh, I think that he also had a sense that the messianic impulse was pressed deep into the soul of the Jewish people. And as with Kafka, you know, um, there are not very many explicitly Jewish references in the fiction and writing of Bruno Schulz, but in a deeper sense, he's aware of the messianic impulse that's in, in the Jewish soul, um, he uh wrote a, a fantastic essay about a fellow drobage artist who later came to jerusalem a Lillian, lilian uh who lived a generation before schultz who helped uh, who came from Drobich to jerusalem to help found the betzalel art school here uh and who was a zionist and schultz appreciates in lilian this transition from messianic um nationalism to what he calls modern and realistic nationalism. Uh, So um, both of these figures, Bruno Schultz and and Franz Kafka, are in some ways quintessentially diasporic, and yet both had uh, full awareness of the meaning uh, and messianic undertones of the Zionist movement.
1: Finally, Ben, Uh, You described the exciting rescue of Schultz's mural uh, brought home to Israel in 2001 and which can be seen today in the Holocaust Museum Yad Vashem in Jerusalem. Moving it was very controversial. It was done secretly and uh, other other countries uh, uh, claimed that uh, they had a right to it. Um, What's your opinion today? about the justice of uh, ingathering the fragments as you put it in the book.
2: Well, first let me just provide a little bit of context, which is that, as you say, the last murals of Schulz that he painted uh, for the children's room of the SS Villa Anderobich were painted over when this uh, part of, of Galicia became part of Ukraine af- after the Second World War. And were considered lost. Uh, Fisovsky, who we mentioned earlier, tried in vain to identify them. They were only rediscovered uh, in 2001, and um, they were they really represent the last traces of Bruno Schulz's vanished world. And my idea was to, in in a sense, follow those traces into the artist's life and afterlife, and um, to tell, based on a lot of new reporting and, and my own visit to Drohobycz in 2020 before the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine to um, investigate that story to show how these murals were miraculously rediscovered only to be secretly chiseled off the walls and smuggled back to Yad Vashem by Israeli agents. And um, I really think that the scandal in both Ukraine and Poland, the ensuing scandal, um, went right to the heart of European Jewish memory. It went to the heart of these larger questions about who has the right to curate so to speak orphaned artworks I say orphaned because Schultz left no heirs and had no children who has the right to claim to stand guard over the legacy of Jewish memory in in Europe and um, uh, uh, and and so uh, to, to come back to your question, I would say that... Um, I was first of all amazed to discover that uh, I can't think of another um, country's secret service that would be interested in questions of, uh, or in launching operations to retrieve or repatriate cultural heritage. So I was very amused to find out that the Mossad uh, had assisted this as if they had nothing better to do. Um, But that really shows the, um, how, how profound the Israeli impulse is to ingather not just exiles, not just political refugees, not just human beings, but also material heritage. This was the case in how much effort the Israelis put in in retrieving um, the manuscripts of Franz Kafka, and this was exactly the same impulse that drove them to go out of their way with a mixture of spy craft and bribery and all kinds of th- uh, all kinds of means to repatriate these, these murals, to bring fragments of them back to Yad Vashem. Um, I compare it in the book to the kidnapping of uh, Eichmann, you know, which was uh, certainly not legal, but uh, uh, was motivated by a certain and justified by a certain moral right. And I think those, the same justification operates here in the case of Schultz. Uh, so we can, uh, you know, on the one hand, understand why the Poles and the Ukrainians were offended. Why, by the way, uh, the remaining Jews in Drobic that I spoke to were offended as if they were being told more or less explicitly that they have no future in that part of the world. I can fully understand that, Um, and yet I think that there's a certain um, justice to the, um, uh, let's say, the culmination, the fact that the culmination of these diaspora stories is, of all places, here in Jerusalem.
1: I agree. The book is Bruno Schultz, An Artist, A Murder, and the Hijacking of History. Thanks so much for talking with me today, Ben.
2: It's been a great pleasure, Renee. Thank you so much.
1: And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov.